Many Americans define themselves by the work they do or the job they hold. But how does God view work? What does it mean to have a calling? And what is vocation? We dive into these questions after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan Hummel, Director of University Engagement at Upper House. Our tagline at Upper House is Think, Be, Do, which is a nod to our understanding that God cares deeply about us as whole people, what we think, who we are, and what we do. Given our context in the university world, this has included a healthy focus on vocation. And if you go back into the archive of this podcast, you'll see many episodes dedicated to questions of calling, work, and identity. We explored these concepts again at a recent event, Agents of Transformation. One of our guest speakers was biblical scholar J. Richard Middleton. His insights in that talk were both powerful and practical, and we were glad to be able to sit down with him for a podcast conversation. Here we'll listen in as our fellows program director, Eric Carlson, discusses with Richard his personal journey exploring the concept of calling and the advice he has for understanding what God is calling us to. J. Richard Middleton is professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at Northeastern Seminary and adjunct professor of theology at Roberts Wesleyan College, both in Rochester, New York. He's widely published in religious journals and is the author of four books, including Abraham's Silence, The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God, and A New Heaven and a New Earth, Reclaiming Biblical Eschatology. Please enjoy this Upwards conversation with Eric Carlson and Richard Middleton. Richard, thank you so much for being here. It's a great pleasure to have you here at Upper House this week, and you've been here as part of a conference that we've had on the uh, theme of vocation or calling that we've called Agents of Transformation. And so I'm really excited to be able to talk with you today about that theme in a little bit more depth. And so um, I'm really glad to be here, Eric. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Great. Well, I thought as, as a way of uh, both introducing you to our listeners and also uh, of getting into the topic of calling and vocation, I'd love to hear a little bit about your own uh, background. You are currently a professor of biblical worldview and exegesis at North Eastern Seminary in Rochester, New York. How does one get to be a professor of biblical worldview and exegesis? What, what, what were some of the big signposts that led you to where you are today or some developments in your own background? In my own intellectual development and in my teaching interests over the years, and I started as a campus minister before being an academic. I was always interested in the big picture. Mm -hmm. what, what is a Christian worldview? How does it shape our vision for the world? How do we live in this world? How do we orient ourselves to the world? Along the way, I had to specialize somewhere. So my specialization became biblical studies uh -huh. and um, exegesis, that is close reading of text. But I would never gave up on the big picture. So for me, the big picture is the worldview. The, the details are, is the exegesis. And having taught in a number of different places, when I came to teach at Northeastern Seminary, 
and I started in 2011, my dean basically said, well, it looks like you were interested in both worldview and exegesis. You want to make a title that matches that? And I said, sure. And that's what <laughs> that's he came great. up with. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, and you grew up in the church, mm. is that correct? And in yeah, Jamaica. Yeah. So I became a Christian when I was about nine or 10. My dad sat me down in the backyard and told me about Jesus. And yeah. um, about 14, a friend at school invited me to come to a youth group. And by about 16, I got baptized and got involved. 18, I finished school and I was a, really an artist. Mm. But my mm. church said, you know, you're a spiritual person. You should go to the seminary down the street where our pastor was an adjunct professor there. Mm. And, and he suggested that to me because um, I didn't know what I really wanted to do. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't good enough as an artist to make it as a fine artist. And I didn't really know enough about the, the, the entrepreneurial world, how to become a sort of a, you know, put myself forward and do stuff. So I said, all right, I'll come to this undergrad seminary. And I was hooked from the first mm, semester, mm. fell in love with scripture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then you continued your training in North America? Yeah, so after that, we moved to Canada and I did a degree, uh, MA in philosophy. I actually learned how to do exegesis by reading Sartre and Kant and Locke huh. and Heidegger, writing exegetical papers on their uh -huh. works, and then came to do graduate study, biblical studies, and transferred those skills. I actually learned first how to read philosophers closely, um, not for their arguments, but for their the literature and what they were saying and their worldview, if you will, uh -huh. how it, uh -huh. what they were saying to their times. And that gave me good grounding for reading the Bible later on. Uh, so it sounds like the question of worldview has been one that's been with you for a long time. Right. Perspective. Perspective. Vision. Yeah. Because um, I, I understood that growing up in, in a majority world, you understand that there are multiple perspectives. There is a perspective from the North American situation, but there's also different competing worldviews within Jamaica, mm -hmm. um, including um, coming out of the slave experience and resistance to oppression, which leads to the Rastafarian movement, for example, uh -huh. and things like this. Yeah. And then you have the, the, the American um, globalization, which is competing with British colonialism. And then you have Marxism, which is also competing, you have multiple worldviews. So how does a Christian fit into that? Yeah. So subjectivity, and not isolated individual subjectivity, but communal subjectivity. What is my group, my, my community? What is the narrative I indwell became an important issue for me. So the vivid experience of these multiple worldviews, competing worldviews, mm -hmm. heightened your awareness of that from, a, right. from a, an uh, early time. And by the, by the 1990s, when I started writing on postmodernism, I found out that almost anyone I knew who was from the majority world said, I understand postmodernism because mm. I grew up in it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah. new for Americans who thought they had one unique worldview, but no, there were always competing worldviews. Yeah. 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 Well, we're, um, we're here to talk about calling, mm -hmm. vocation. Those words, I think, are sometimes are often used interchangeably. Um, so it might do us well to, to start with a definition uh, of what calling or vocation is. Those are words that are used in a lot of different contexts. Mm -hmm. People use them in, in multiple ways. They have long um, histories within the Christian tradition where people have used them in different ways. But what's important for us to, to know or to, to uh, have in mind as we think about the concept right. of calling or vocation? So there are at least three primary meanings of vocation or calling. So vocation comes from the Latin word to call, yeah. right? So we think yeah. about convocation. It's like you call a group, group together for a meeting mm -hmm. or you evoke something, you call something out. You know, so 
we have different ways to use the term. Um, I happen to have been friends with Paul Marshall, mm-hmm. Christian thinker who's done a lot on persecution of the church in the, in the world. And Paul Marshall wrote his dissertation on calling and on the, tr- on the, the, the transition from the medieval notion of vocation or calling to the mm-hmm. modern notion, which came especially through Locke and the Enlightenment. And in the medieval times, your vocation or calling was your religious calling to join, say, a monastery or, or, or convent mm-hmm. or to become a pastor or priest. It was very specific that way. And um, by the time you got to the Enlightenment, your calling became your profession. So to be a doctor or to be an intellectual was a calling, and it was a secularized version of that. I learned from a lecture that John Stott did many, many years ago and as an undergraduate, that calling in the Bible is much broader. It is your calling to be a servant of God, a mm-hmm. Christian in the New Testament. And I've looked at calling throughout the whole Bible now. And so I view calling as broader than either being called to a religious vocation specifically or to be calling to a profession. The calling is what it means to be human. Mm. What does God call us mm. to be in the world as mm. human beings? And a Christian calling is a renewal of your humanity to serve God and others. So mm. I view it in the biggest possible sense. Oh, uh, and you met, you mentioned the the shift from a medieval uh, concept of calling a vocation towards the religious life mm-hmm. to what you think of as a more secular version that comes up a lot. Luther plays a role in there as well, right? In, in terms of his concept of vocation, which has been quite influential. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and do you think, so, and, and there was a sort of Protestant Catholic divide here uh, for some time. From your understanding of the lay of the land today, do you think that there are convergences among Protestants and Catholics in terms of how they think about that concept of calling? There may be. I'm not an expert on that, so I, I, I'm not going to pronounce on that. Uh, okay. I don't know for sure, but I, I do see more connections between Protestants and Catholics thinking about the nature of their faith. Mm-hmm. So on the topic of calling per se, I'm not absolutely sure. Okay. But in Scripture, calling is, uh, is, a, is a broad concept. It's a big picture, uh, It's a I big think, picture. Yeah. You've done a lot of work, um, well, you've done a lot of work on, on all lots of parts of scripture, but especially you've written a book on the image of God uh, mm-hmm. in, in Genesis and, and uh, in your, your uh, brilliant book, A New Heavens and the New Earth, you talk a lot about the early chapters of Genesis and the relationship uh, of the image of God to calling. I wonder if you could talk to yeah. us about that, unpack that. What, what's the connection? There? So historically, and, and I got this from other writers who looked at the history of the interpretation of what it means made in God's image. But historically, um, in the, from the patristics through to modern times, the dominant interpretation of the image of God is that there is some interiority, some faculty of the mind or the soul, rationality or conscience or something like that, that mimics or images God, because God is a divine mind. We are also rational beings. Mm-hmm. Um, when you come to the 20th century, the, the, the radical shift from that has been Karl Barth and many others in the, the tradition, ex- influenced to some extent by existentialism, mm. that our calling is our relationship with God and with one another. Okay. That is what the image of God means. We are to, it, God is a trinity. God is an in, interpersonal relationship. That's what God is. So we relate to God in personal relationships and we relate to one another in personal relationships. Um, among theologians, that has been very common. Biblical scholars looking at what image of God meant in the ancient Near East viewed the king as the image of God. That was a dominant idea. And the king had what we call 
what Gerhard von Rad called a functional um, image that he represented God by what he did, mm. by his actions. Okay. And so I began talking about a functional image of God, yeah. and this has become the dominant approach by biblical scholars today. Though these days I will, functional sounds reductionistic. Mm-hmm. So I'll say a vocational image of God. Okay. To be image is to be called to live a certain way. That's the function, but it's not just function. It's also identity. To be called to be a particular kind of person and to live in the world a particular kind of way, representing God. So what we do in the world is meant to show God to the world. And so our character should represent who God is in the way we act in the world. So that's the the kind of vocational idea of the image of God that I have been focusing on of late. Right. So, and and the when the image of God, when when the um, the Hebrew term that is translated into Latin as the imago dei, the image of God, um, comes up first in Genesis one. Mm-hmm. It's it's connected to this vocation. Yes. And and how. Um, what specifically in in the early chapters of Genesis and Genesis one and two is that um, that vocation defined? Yeah. So it comes up, of course, in Genesis one verses twenty six through twenty eight, and the term image of God or Selim Elohim, but also the likeness of God, Demut Elohim, occurs both in Genesis twenty six and in twenty seven. In twenty six and twenty eight, you have the function uh-huh. which frames that, and the function is to have rule. Uh, over or among the animals, which require, which is about the farming and domestication of animals, and to subdue the land or the earth, which means bringing the land into productivity. Um, so it's about the the foundational agricultural functions of human beings in the world, which lays the groundwork for all the other sorts of cultural developments that humans do, um, uh, building cities and having technology and you know institutions and so forth. So it's saying that to be human is to engage in earthly life, in productive activities, bringing forth the potentials that God has placed in creation, which are only potentials mm-hmm. until humans um, construct human culture mm-hmm. out of that. And that's what the image of God means. And that's not just in Genesis 1. That's an exegesis of Genesis 1. But you get from the ancient Near East, that is how the Mesopotamians and the Egyptians also thought of the image. That is what the king does. The king organizes civilization and culture. And the king um, supervises the building of cities and monuments and so on. And this is what the king does as image of God. And so you have in Mesopotamia, for example, sometimes the king is said to be the image of the sun god, Shamash, because the sun god is a god of justice and the king produces justice in the world. Mm-hmm. Things like that. Mm-hmm. There are all kinds of details and permutations which show that the ancient Near Eastern context validates the exegesis you can do of scripture. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. So that's a universal human vocation? Yes, to the in, in the God. Bible, yes. Yeah. And okay, and I, as Christians, we often think about calling or, or a vocation as the call to follow Jesus mm-hmm. or maybe the call to love God with uh, and, and neighbor. Um, how, how are those linked right. in Scripture, the, the, the sort of specific call that we, that we have to, 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 to be disciples? Right. And perhaps even the call towards mission, the Great, yes, the yes. great Commission. Mm-hmm. Are those linked in some way to this general human? Yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, of course, a Christian. So for me, the New Testament is really important. And the call to follow Jesus and love God is very important. But if you read the New Testament without the old, then you're reading the Bible in a way that the early church never read it. I mean, Jesus and the apostles had no New Testament. Their scripture was the Old Testament. 
So that shaped who they were. And so when you talk about following Jesus, what you're really thinking about is that Jesus says, if you want to really serve God, the God who the Old Testament says, you know, um, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, which he summarizes. If you want to do that, follow me and I will show you the path to get there hmm. because we've gone so far off track. We have lost the plot hmm. of what it means hmm. to really serve God hmm. and image him. So now the, uh, Paul will say Christ is the perfect image of God. He did what we were supposed to have done. So now let's be conformed to the image of Christ. And so Paul calls the church the new humanity. So we are to be the, what it, to be a Christian is to be a renewed human being. And so to follow Christ means this is the path to regain your humanity, mm -hmm. which has been distorted by sin. That's the way it's thought of. And the way the Great Commission works is the Great Commission is, of course, a temporary form of imaging God, because in the new creation, you will not need to engage in the Great Commission to, to, to teach all the nations um, the gospel, because everyone who is in the new creation will know that gospel. But the... the, the the way I think of it is, when I look at the whole biblical story, the Great Commission is a restart of Abraham's call. So, if you go to the, the Babylonian creation myth, um, Enuma Elish, mm. the gods create the people of Babylon. They create the black-headed people, the Mesopotamians. They don't create anybody else. Most creation myths have the creation of your, your tribal group. Genesis is interesting because it doesn't, God doesn't create Israel. God creates the human race with all the nations. When they go off track, God calls one man, Abraham, to found a new nation. And that nation will have the purpose to bring blessing to all the families of the earth. The Abrahamic calling is the Great Commission. That's what Jesus recalls his disciples, who are all Jews at that point, to go into the world, to the Gentile world, and bring blessing to the nations by proclaiming the gospel to them. Mm -hmm. So I see that, that the, the, the Abrahamic calling is one piece of the human calling. It's not the entire calling. Oh, the entire calling is to be human. Part of that is to share what you have learned about God with those who don't yet know that. It sounds from what you're saying that if we're going to think about calling in a biblical way, then we really need to ground ourselves in the, the plot line, the story, the narrative of scripture. I think that's pretty obvious to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because I think sometimes the, the, the concept itself can get detached yes. from that narrative and it, it, it can start to fill, it becomes sort of like a container that we can throw a, a bunch of stuff into it that may not be what it's meant to, you know, what, what the way in which the concept functions or what, it, mm -hmm. what we get from scripture. Mm -hmm. But great. Um, let, let's think a little bit about the relationship of calling or vocation to work. And of course, mm -hmm. the, the word vocation is often used in mm -hmm. general context. It's used here at the university to refer to work. Often, mm -hmm. Or we think about vocational training to yes. become trained in a specific line, line of work or a specific um, set of skills. How should we think about the, the, the relationship between this general call that Christians have? and the specific right. work that we do. So imagine a pie chart. And in that pie chart, you have different you know, segments of the pie. One segment is work. One might be entertainment. One might be family. One might be um, friendships. You know, you have multiple segments. 
work is a pretty big part of the pie for most people. Now, it's not always paid work. Mm-hmm. Um, you can have all kinds of work that, that aren't, isn't paid work. Vocation is the whole pie. Work is an important part of your vocation. So that's the way I see it. It's not that it's something separate, but it's a subcategory. So if I'm going to be um, an authentic human being renewed by Jesus Christ, imaging God in my life, I have to do that also in my work. Not only in my work, and I would sometimes use the term vocation for work, sure, sure yeah, yeah. you know, in a popular sense, but yeah. I want to clarify that vocation is bigger than work. So my calling to be a Christian is re- related to my entertainment, my consumer choices, my civic engagement, my family life, my friendship, my marriage, all of these areas of my life, uh, my intellectual growth, my studies, but also my work. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really clear, that's, that's helpful clarifying um, because I think, it it also it helps to put work in its proper place. It you know we have the we have the um, the te- tendency or maybe the temptation many of us for work to become all consuming mm-hmm. or that's the thing that we live for and right. that's really where my identity lies and so forth. But it sounds like the kind of concept that you're you're laying out of, of vocation is is the broader piece helps to 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 mitigate some of those mm-hmm. those tendencies. Which is not to say that work shouldn't in some sense define you if you love your work. I mean, if you do it out of sense mm-hmm. of you know, duty to, to prove something and achieve something in a company and arise the ranks, that can be very debilitating. But if it's something you really love, like in my case, I, I love teaching and I love research and thinking and writing and so on. And I'm coming close to retirement and I'm not one of those people. Uh, <laughs> there are a lot of people who when they retire, they die within a year or two because mm-hmm. they have nothing to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not gonna die because my work is not my work is not defined by my job, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm doing a lot of things that I will keep doing. Um, they won't consume my life. I have other things to do, like friendships and so forth, and, and um, you know, bicycle riding and hiking and watching waterfowl in my backyard mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. I love to do. So it will not be only work. But work is important to me, um, and I don't do it out of a sense simply of duty, but out of love. Mm, mm, that's and when that happens, that's great. Not everyone gets that. I understand that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that does raise the question uh, for for many of us uh, who live in, in um, you know relatively affluent and privileged settings. Um, in like as we do, many of us do in the United States. We we often think about the concept of of work or vocation differently because we have options we have choices we're getting an education that gives us the privilege of of some agency over mm-hmm. that whereas for most of history and much of the world today that those those options simply aren't there um as i think about that do you you know how um, the concept of of, of work or calling of calling or vocation there, how did, might that apply to somebody who is in a situation where they don't necessarily have the same kinds of options that say a student graduating from the University of Wisconsin does by virtue of their education and, and, and the privileges that they have? So let me, let me say two things, one more autobiographical and then address that more broadly. Um, you know, I'm in academia. It's very difficult to get a job in academia, right. especially yeah. in the humanities, especially yeah. in the biblical and theological yeah. fields. And I didn't know I was going to get such a job. And so my sense of calling to do that kind of work was not tied to an income. I was doing that while doing other things. I was a house painter. 
I cleaned bathrooms for a number of years. I did all kinds of stuff. And I tried to do it to the glory of God and to be, um, you know, in, in the relationship with the people on the job, to be compassionate and kind to them and so on. So there are ways in which you can be in a suboptimal uh, situation. Now, I had power because I had education, but I didn't have money. <laughs> I had mm-hmm. no money whatsoever. <laughs> and I learned how to live in those kind of situations. So we often live in situations that are not optimal. Um, the question is, how do you live best in those situations, knowing that they're not necessarily the perfect will of God, but they're what is a- achievable in this time? And to go beyond situations of you know, socioeconomic de- deprivation, there are all these people now who are refugees from war and from mm-hmm. famine and mm-hmm. so on. How are they yeah. living? Yeah. And they're not living in any optimal situations. In every situation, no matter how problematic or traumatic it is, there are better and worse ways to live. And for me, that's what calling is about. Mm, mm. And so as an individual from the inside, that's what calling is about. For a broader, in terms of social policy, how do we change the situations in the world to make things more just for people? I'm not an expert in that. That's not my area at all. I'm very yeah. much an introvert. And I, <laughs> and I think about how I can help people from the inside reflect on how they do what they do better. Yeah. The social policy questions are not the ones I am right. an expert in. Yeah, yeah. So here at Upper House, we are located uh, on the UW-Madison campus, and we do a lot of work with students, uh, undergraduate students, graduate students, and many others in the community as well. But students are especially asking the question about calling and vocation and uh, wrestling with big questions about what should I do with my life, um, how do I know what God might be calling me to do, and so on. And, um, well, just... Just think about that as a, as a general set of mm-hmm. questions there. What, if somebody came to you, a student came to you and said, I'm trying to figure out what God wants me to do with yeah. my life. Um, what advice would you give to such a student? So the first thing I would say, and this may sound shocking to you, I'd say, get rid of the language of what God wants you to do. Uh, that is super spiritual uh, claptrap. Uh, you have to negotiate in this world, given the general calling that God wants to be human beings living morally and compassionately, using our power for the benefit of others. Given Uh that, that's the calling, figure out what are the different kinds of things that you can do that you have some skill in, that you can increase your your competences in, Mm. that you like to do and love Mm. to do, and what are the needs in the world? What are the organizations that may be not traditional? Let's go, let's think outside the box. Uh, Can you maybe get an internship with some interesting organization that can use some of what you have and learn about new opportunities to do something different in the world that's worthwhile. But it's about, you know, I, I like to quote um, Frederick Beekner's definition of vocation, right? It's where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Mm. And my wife would add, and where you can make a living at it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to some extent. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So oh, that's, that's, that's really interesting. And, and um, so n- not to think so much in terms of, of what God's specific will for me might be, but for the general will that God has yeah. for, for people. Yeah. And then to try to discern from... Use sanctified wisdom, sanctified common sense, wisdom. and figure out. And what, yeah. you, what you do right now might not be what you're going to do 10 years right. from now. It may change. I'd had no idea where it'd end up, yeah. to be honest. <laughs> yeah. So there's not one specific vocation that you might have, but those can change over time. Right. Or is there a general vocation that the different things that you do sort of fit into? Well, if your life has coherence and unity, there probably is some kind of overall vocation. But you don't know that in advance. 
when you're younger, you have more possibilities open to you. And once you start down a particular path, you become a little more specialized. You have actually less freedom of choice because you can't really go back and restart right. some of those other options. And right. I remember one of my professors, a very wise um, Jewish philosopher professor told, said, that the older you are in life, the more choices you make, the less freedom you have. Right. But the better you become at what you do. Oh, yeah. And, and that's about virtue. Right. And to, to be virtue means you have less opportunity for vice because you have become a particular kind of person yeah. over time. Yeah, yeah. But it's also about vocation and choices that you make in, in career and so forth. So each choice that you make, in a sense, closes off some options. To some degree. It's not some degree. always totally, you know, but, but yeah. to some degree, yeah. So, um, so then if somebody came to you and said, uh, does God have a specific plan for my life? That I need to sort of I don't believe out. that. That's not my belief at all. I think that's uh, Christian fictitious, fictitious, fictitious <laughs> theology. So, and and that that also then would answer the question if somebody said, uh, "Could I could I have made a mistake and not and 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 sort of not do what God has called me to but, do?" But and I made mistakes. And yeah. I had dead ends, and I was in a PhD program that crashed and burned. Uh -huh. And I restarted, and I figured, what am I going to do in this context? What can I do that's reasonable? Living where I am with two children and my wife is supporting me, where can I commute to to get a PhD uh -huh. that could give me what I'm interested in? And I figured that out. Okay. You know, after about four or five years after the previous one crashed and burned. But it's about sanctified common sense, I think. You, you quoted this, this uh, famous definition from Friedrich Buechner about uh, the, where you're called to is the place where uh, your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. Um, <laughs> Your deep gladness that suggests to me sort of figuring out what makes you tick, what your passions are, your interests, and so mm -hmm. forth. So that you think that that plays an important, that sort of, that process of self-knowledge plays an important role in discernment about what we should be doing. I, I think so. And, and what, do you have ideas about what, if somebody comes and they, 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 they want to know, well, how do I figure that out? Yeah. <laughs> how do I... Uh, what what are good gauges or markers or, right. or ways to um, understand about myself what really makes me tick? Like, is it possible to ha that you that you what you think makes you tick is not actually the the, the real thing? Yeah, and there may be more than one thing that makes you tick, right? Uh -huh. So, so um, I was an art student, and when I went to my my seminary, undergraduate seminary, I, I got interested in the Bible and intellectual pursuits. So, intellectual pursuits made me tick. Art made me tick, poetry made me tick, music made me tick. I love all of these things, but I found out I wasn't as good at some of those things as a lot of other people around me. So although I loved them, I realized that couldn't be my career because mm. I wouldn't be very successful. Okay. Uh -huh. So I, I, okay. that kind of choice uh, yeah. was there. But a lot of it, it has to do with the affirmation other people give you. They notice things about you. Now, back at that time, we had what we called spiritual gifts questionnaires. Mm -hmm. And we did those kind of things. And you could say, this kind of giftedness fits me better. But you also would give it to other people to evaluate you. Okay. And I was consistently getting, you can explain stuff. Um, you are explaining stuff to other students in your class about what the professor is saying, yeah, clarifying yeah. it to them. Yeah. You should be a teacher. Yeah. So I got that yeah. kind of affirmation. Yeah. I wasn't sure about that because I was a very shy person. Uh -huh. But people said, you should explore that further. Yeah. There are other kinds of you know, instruments that you can use. You could use the Myers-Briggs profile or the Enneagram right. and things could help you. Um, but it has to do with just common sense and yeah. make, getting feedback yeah. about from other people. I mean, I love music, but people would tell me, 
You, you don't have a very good voice. <laughs> and, and I look, I love yeah. playing guitar. Yeah. My fingers are short and stubby and can hardly reach on that fret, you know. That's <laughs> a sign. So that's a sign yeah. that although I love this, it's going to be a hobby. It's yeah. not going to be a yeah. career. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's enormously affirming if somebody says, it can't, speaks or vocalizes what you might be sensing. It's, I think it helps solidify mm -hmm. a sense for us of, yeah, this is sort of, I don't know if it's what I've been made to do. Maybe maybe there, we haven't been made to do a specific thing, but something that that you know we we delight in and God yeah, delights yeah. in us doing. And I'm not totally you know against the language of you know what you're made to do or what God wants you to do, but just don't take that too literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's just a metaphor the way we speak about that. Yeah, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. So the idea of the, the passions and interests, those 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 desires, our gifts come into play. What about? Um, we all live under certain constraints or commitments. Yes. So maybe, you know, we would love to go, I don't know, uh, go, go work off in the city, but at the same time, we have an aging parent who needs us yes. uh, and, and we're constrained by that way. Or we're, we're in a marriage and our spouse, but we need to work together to yes. find something that works well for yes. us or for our kids. How should we think about constraints, commitments, in relationship to calling as we sort of try to figure out. Yeah, I think the contours of calling are not defined primarily by who you are and your gifts, but also by the context in which you're in, because we have to be responsible to those around us and to those commitments. And I cannot just go my own individualistic way and say, well, God is calling me to do this. And my wife said, well, I don't want to do that. Right. Yeah, of course, I have to respect that. And so this is where following Christ becomes a really important model. To follow Christ means take up your cross and follow him. This means that you have to, in some senses, crucify some of your desires mm. that would conflict with being a loving person in your committed relationships. Sacrifice is a part of the calling. And we often don't talk about that. But anyone knows that if you're in a long-term relationship, like in a marriage, you sacrifice or the marriage cannot stay the same. You have to adapt to the other person. And as you have kids who grow up, they will cause you suffering. Of mm -hmm. course they will. And you mm -hmm. will have to adapt to them. Mm -hmm. to, uh, so, so sacrifice is intrinsic to participation in the life of Christ because he lived a life that gave himself for others. That doesn't mean he was a doormat. That was his calling. That was his vocation to live in such a way that God was shown through him. But for God to be shown in you, you cannot just be a power-hungry person who right. says, I want to do this. Right. You have to say, how do I show love to those around me? How do I honor my commitment? That's intrinsic to calling. Mm. So thank you for raising that point. Yeah. That's really important. Yeah, well, a couple of things you said raised other questions for me. One of them uh, is the role of, of ambition. Mm -hmm. um, take up your cross and follow me on the one hand. Uh, well, that could be an ambition, you see. Can't, yes, so, yeah. so how should we think about ambition? Is, yeah. is that always a, is it, is it always a negative thing? No, or no. or how, what's, what's good ambition? Well, we have, we have to have more than one ambition. And ambition should not be defined by our consumer society mm -hmm. or by our desire to get ahead in our field. Yeah. Ambition should be desired, uh, focused on what does it mean to be more Christ-like? Now, Christ was clearly an ambitious person. He set his face towards Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he mm -hmm. was no mamby-pamby person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so how do we think about, I, I have this goal, I want to get here. Given my situation, how do I get there in a manner that glorifies Christ? That, that's the way to think about it. But you need to be ambitious. 
But I wasn't very ambitious when I was younger. My wife helped me become ambitious. Oh. Helped me say, you got to think about where you want to get to. I was like, yeah. I was like a hippie, you know, laissez-faire. <laughs> I got to hang out and just love God and love other people and, yeah. and process things. And oh, where you want to go career-wise? Let's, let's go there. And she helped me with that, which is very wonderful. So following Christ can be your, your, yeah. your all-consuming ambition. Yeah, I think then, so. That then puts everything but, else but in But that needs some context. What does that mean? Yeah. I, I, you follow Christ given who you are right uh -huh. now and who, what your makeup is yeah. like and yeah. what your context is like, yes. Great, great. Well, Richard, it's been uh, a, a pleasure talking with you uh, about this concept of calling. I'm, I'm learning as, as we're going on. I wonder if you have any sort of closing words, parting thoughts about uh, about how about cons about the concept of calling for some for someone as they come in we're well, one of the things that we do here is we run a program a fellows program for students mm -hmm. undergraduate and graduate students and we spend a whole year uh working on the concept of calling in one of the tracks that we run and in fact the first year uh is devoted to the biblical story so that we find ourselves as we think about vocation in in the in a bigger story um and and then we think about in other tracks how calling might play out in specific areas or disciplines, so science and technology or arts uh, and culture. Um, any uh, any, I, I'm just curious about any wisdom that you have for for us or for students who go through about um, how we might um, how how vocation is an all encompassing concept that sort of comes to comes comes to play in every aspect of what we do. I'm not sure that I can say that much more except this. It, it's very tempting when you're part of the church to follow the, the the framework that many churches have that your calling is something sacred or spiritual versus your secular life. And even if you believe that you need to be dwell, indwelling this larger narrative of scripture and thinking through the kinds of issues you're talking about, you can be deformed by the church mm. to separate your calling yeah. from your everyday life. It's just the standard. In fact, because we're, we're, we're not shaped by our ideas, we're shaped by our socialization. And you can be socialized into a way of living that your ideas don't actually work. And so you need to find a community that empowers you uh. to live a whole life of calling rather than one that wants you to live a split life. Right. And that's hard. But you mean you have to discern what kind of church you're going to be part of. Okay. And that, so that community is, is really essential. I think it's we, essential. We cannot figure this out on our own. We're I don't doing think it as part of, of a community of, of people who are all sort of pulling together in yeah. the same direction. Oh, wonderful. Well, Richard, thank you so very much for being with us. And it's my pleasure. Take care. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW. 